Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. This is a show I'm very excited to do, one we've been looking forward to for a while. My guest is Dr. John Cito. Jack Cito is an English professor, now retired, but has never lost his love for reading and literature, a graduate of Ohio University, where he got his PhD, also a proud LaSalle University grad. He went to LaSalle back when it was LaSalle College, and he taught there for over four decades, right? Yes. And what we're going to talk about today, which I think is fascinating, is books. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about summer reading, the types of books that are out there you might be looking for. I know you still participate in a book club, so you've got lots of great ideas. And if you want to sit back and watch this, you'll probably get some good ideas for this summer. So I'll just start right out and ask you, if you had to pick a book right now to read or casual weekend or whatever, what would you go for? Well, I think I mentioned this to you before, Brian. It's uh, by Tana French, and it's called The Searcher. Um, Tana French, like you, has dual citizenship in U.S. and in Ireland. And she's been living in Dublin, I think, for the last 30 years. And this is kind of atypical. If people have read her... Um, her novel In the Woods or any of her novels about the uh, Dublin police force uh, mystery novels. This novel is kind of a mystery novel, but it's atypical in this respect. Uh, here's a woman writing about a veritable he-man. Uh, the protagonist is a former Chicago detective who has just gone through a very painful divorce. His wife left him and he's trying to, um, oh, start again. So what he does is he buys a cottage in the Western part of Ireland. It's a cottage that nobody has lived in in 20 years. He buys it sight unseen and he heads to the West of Ireland, one of his possessions being his grandfather's tool chest. And he's going to set this uh, little house in order as part of his um, recreation of self, as part of his own therapy. But of course, he gets involved in other kinds of things while he's living there, supposedly in uh, idyllic, bucolic Western Ireland. Uh, he heads to the pub. He finds some interesting people there. Uh, he finds a whole lot of very uninteresting people there, but he starts to get pulled into the town and some things that have been going on in the background, and it turns into um, a very interesting plot in which he's involved with, uh, through his very sensitive side, with a couple of oppressed members of the town, and he gets involved physically uh, with some other people who are um, doing um, oh nefarious kinds of things. Um, so that's as far maybe as I want to lead you into the book. It's extremely well written. It's very interesting. 
um, it's um, a peon almost to the whole Irish landscape, its beauties, and at the same time, how solitary it is uh, as he goes roaming through the, the uh, peat bogs and out in the, the back of his property, uh, shooting rabbits, making rabbit stew, living off the fat of the land. What's the name of the book and the author again? It's called The Searcher by Tana French, F-R-E-N-C-H. Tana French, The Searcher. Yeah. He has about five, six novels that are out. And I, I guess I've read three or four of them. Now, um, we're going to move to a new book in a moment. But um, years ago, I had the luxury, the pleasure of sitting in your classes and learning from you. And I always remember you would take an ironic look at uh, things, the American dream. You would compare it to the nightmares that exist in America. When you read, uh, how do you read as a critical reader in your eyes? I mean, I'm sure it's like art. You appreciate art. It's it's the beholder, but when you read, what are you looking for when you read in a book that makes it good? You know, I, I think I read the same way you read. Um, if something interests me, uh, I keep on reading. Sometimes it's plot, sometimes it's character. Um, the setting in The Searcher will really pull you in, and it's uh, wonderfully uh, described as well. But I, I'm not looking for anything. I do know this. I uh, I read a lot of books on Kindle, and they they allow you to sample a, a novel, so I can read two three chapters before I decide to buy it. And very often, if it doesn't interest me in the first or second chapter, I just delete it and move on to the next book in the queue of things that I want to read. Let's move to the second book. What would your next recommendation be? Uh, you know, here's something you're not going to see show up uh, on the top of the bestseller list, although it's right there. Uh, and it's actually a trilogy by somebody named Don Winslow. Uh, the first novel, The Power of the Dog. The second one is called uh, The Cartel. And the third one is called The Border. And I would suggest you read them in that particular order. Uh, the same character uh, perdures through all three of the books. He's um, kind of an ex-CIA man who's acting kind of a, as a freelance uh, person who cares about the oppressed. And it really centers around the narco traffic um, just south of the border, and as it slips into the USA. Um, the problem with the books is they're extremely violent uh, and not not for the, uh, what's the truism, the weak of heart, um, but they are page turners. Again, extremely well-written, and I've even read some of his novels outside that uh, that trilogy. And he's a, he's a very productive, a very uh, engaging kind of writer. That's great. That's book number two. Let's move to the third. What would your third choice be? <laughs> well, this one is a delightful romp. Um, Deacon King Kong 
by James McBride. Now, McBride's got a lot of novels that are out there. And I also had read the, uh, I didn't read The Color of Water, which, by the way, he wrote. But I read one of his other books that, oh, Good Lord Bird, I think it's called. Um, but th this novel <laughs> is set in South Brooklyn, and it has the most unlikely cast of characters, um, a uh, promising baseball prospect, like your son, Brian. Um, but unlike your son, Brian, this guy goes into the drug trade, and he basically has a whole uh, tenement house in South Brooklyn under his thumb. And in the midst of that, an aging male, whom a lot of people would uh, term a loser, um, winds up getting very involved as the uh, unlikely savior of the whole community. Uh, it's hilarious. It's full of people who are animated by love. Um, they are a group of believers, and it pays off for them when they uh, find something very interesting in their church, uh, which is really the center, uh, not just symbolically, but literally of their whole community. Um, Deacon King Kong. Um, that's a, a book that's um, that I hadn't heard a whole lot about, but but uh, it is something you would want to read, particularly if you're interested in uh, uh, the African American experience. Um, this is not just a bunch of tropes about um, drug dealers and um, people who are unemployed. This is about their humanity and how they are uh, supercharged with concern for each other in their community. That's book number three. I want to ask you, you know, nobody watching this, uh, unless they're watching it hopefully years from now and things are peaceful, but nobody <laughs> watching this right now, um, ha, uh, you know, has me to, has to have me to tell them that there's a lot of struggles in the world right now between COVID and between what's happening in Ukraine and all these things. Books are an escape. Um, do you think people take advantage of it enough to kind of just get into another world and to more or less just get away for a while? Interesting that you would say that. I was talking today, uh, uh, one of our neighbors, uh, she's in the same book club as I, and she asked me if I enjoyed the book that we're going to discuss next week. And I turned it around and asked her, do you like it? And she said, I really dislike it. It is so depressing. I'm sick and tired of reading novels about depressing people. Um, I said to her, it's kind of porn suffering that you see in so many of these books that I have read and that the book clubs seem to keep bringing up. Um, yeah, I think they are looking to escape. Um, not escape in a in a way that's uh, psychologically damaging, but um, they want to be entertained. And I think that's the first thing that any person who's writing a novel in particular should care about. It should be entertaining. Um, the more that they are trying to convert people, the more they're trying to uh, teach a lesson, that kind of didacticism I think winds up diminishing the book itself. So I, I, I think 
escape literature is a good thing. I'll mention another book that's very popular right now. I'll talk about escape literature, uh, The Lincoln Highway. I don't know if you know of this book or if you've read it, but a bunch of 18-year-olds go on the road, as it were. Uh, They go on the Lincoln Highway, starting somewhere in near Lincoln, Nebraska. And initially, they were going to head to San Francisco, where this road all the way across America goes, but instead they head to Manhattan. And a lot of things happen along the way. It's a typical road novel, quest novel. Uh, It allows the author to introduce all kinds of bizarre situations. It's very much plot driven, but the characters are all very unique. Uh, One or two are extremely endearing, and one or two are people that you don't want to turn your back on. The Lincoln Highway. The Lincoln Highway. The more towns. When we talk um, about books, a lot of people then say, well, I didn't read the book. I went to the movie, or they read the book and don't like the movie. What has your experience been with books made into movies? Are there are there some that have been made very well and some in your eyes that have been made you know, pathetically? I do think there's some that have been made very well. Now, here's a LaSalle grad, um, well after your time, Brian. Uh, Matt Quick, <laughs> who wrote the Silver Linings Playbook. Now, you sold the movie, right? Right, that's a good movie. Okay, um, with Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. Um, well, the movie leaves out some very important parts of Matt Quick's novel. One scene that you would love because it's set on the LaSalle campus. It's set right by the Japanese tea house that used to be right across the street from the main campus on the Blaine Estate. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that tea house back uh, on the other side of all oh, the Blaine Estate, but I don't remember the tea house. Okay. Well, at one point, Brother Joe Keenan even had the tea ceremony in there for several years before he uh, passed away. But there's a great scene that occurs there. And there's also a scene that occurs in North Philadelphia and where the protagonist winds up in Temple University Hospital, uh, a place that you know well. Now, those two scenes do not occur in the movie itself. Nonetheless, the movie is remarkable. Uh, I enjoyed that movie so much, even though I kept waiting to look for this scene and this scene that never showed up. And I believe that Matt Quick uh, was a consultant for the film itself. So I don't know if he was right there on set when they were filming, um, but it came with his permission uh, to write the script in a way that uh, was not an exact imitation of the novel. Another movie I remember, it's a book that I really enjoyed, um, the Accidental Tourist. Do you do you know that? Did you see that movie? I did not see that movie. No. Okay. Well, the movie's the movie's just terrific. And Ann Tyler uh, wrote the novel, and she's one of my favorite writers. So I must have read fifteen of her novels. Uh, she lives in Baltimore. She's my age, and unlike me, she's still productive. She just turned down. 
uh, turned out a book last year called Redhead by the Side of the Road, which I enjoyed, but one of our book clubs did not enjoy it at all, but I liked it very much. Um, that movie, I thought, was captured the whole spirit of the accidental tours very well. And one of the things that you always remember from that novel is there's a scene that takes place at Windows of the World. Uh, that was the restaurant that was at the top of the Twin Towers building mm -hmm. that is no more. And I remember being there for dinner once with my wife and daughter. And when I saw this scene described in the novel, I got vertiginous. Uh, I, I, I was, I was uh, getting a dizzy spell from the way it was described since she was so far up. And I remember watching that movie and enjoyed the movie tremendously as well. Now, I'm not a big movie goer. So Bill Wine would tell you that, uh, Jerry Molyneux, two LaSalle people whom you know, would tell you that I don't see enough movies and I have to bite my tongue and not say, well, you two guys don't read enough novels. But the nice thing about reading novels is you can read them anywhere. So you never have to leave your house. It's an agoraphobic dream come true. Um, the internet and the novel. Um, you can stay in your house all the time. So long before the pandemic, I was somebody who stayed in the house and was never bored because I had all these books available to me. And the nice thing about the Kindle is I read a book review and I can download it in one minute and I've got the book. Uh, I don't have to wait for it. I get uh, instant satisfaction, um, instantaneous satisfaction uh, from that book. Let's move to another book. What would your next choice be for somebody looking for some, you know, some light reading, some serious reading, whatever, during the summer? Um, Colson Whitehead, uh, you know, from the, the Underground Railroad, and he's won all kinds of awards. This is a lighter book. Um, nonetheless, it's something that um, is intellectually provocative but it's something that you can read without underlining passages and taking notes. And I'm thinking of uh, Harlem Shuffle. Um, he's, the Nickel Boys and Harlem Shuffle have been on the bestseller list. And this, this book, very interesting. A, a guy who could have gone down the wrong path. Um, he's involved with a very shady cousin and they do do a few things which are, uh, uh, not considered to be legal, but he owns a furniture store in Harlem and he's trying to build a business and build a life for his wife and children. Uh, his in-laws live on Strivers Row, it's called in, in the novel. And his, he would like for uh, his, his wife to have a nicer house. She seems to be pretty satisfied with the lifestyle that they have, but he wants to be better than what he was born into. And there's a lot of comedy, a lot of very interesting turns in the plot that occur there. And I don't know the Harlem area very well, um, but for anybody who knows the Morningside Heights, Harlem, Manhattan area, uh, they will enjoy that because it's deeply rooted in that particular setting.
you obviously taught, like I said, for four decades, American literature, British literature, all sorts of things. Who was the best American writer in your eyes? Let, let me answer that this way. The best American writer right now for my money is Richard Rousseau. Um, his, <laughs> every one of his novels that I've read have been a delight. Some greater than others, but they're all great and some are extraordinary. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention the one that uh, is most recent. Uh, chances are, um, based on the uh, um, Johnny Mathis song, uh, anybody who went through the lottery for the draft for Vietnam uh, should read this novel about a group of males who return in their own mind to when that those lottery numbers were announced and they were listening on the radio. But Russo, uh, the whole his, his the whole corpus of his work, Empire Falls. Um, nobody's fool, everybody's fool, a sequence that he wrote 25 years later. Um, Straight Man, which is one of my all-time favorite novels about an English teacher who gets in a lot of trouble. Um, but then to go back to your original question, who's the best writer in America? Well, I don't know. I think this is up for grabs, and I'll bet you've got as good an opinion as I have. I'll just throw out a couple to you. Nathaniel Hawthorne. I didn't appreciate him when I was younger. When I reread things like The Scarlet Letter and even The House of the Seven Gables, which some people just think of as a gothic thriller, thriller. when I read them uh, in my post-19, my post-50s, um, I really, um, looked at, at Hawthorne as a genius. Um, his short stories, genius. Um, I'll mention a couple of others, one of which is a favorite of yours, Ernest Hemingway. I don't know how, if the novels are going to be read in the 22nd century, uh, and there's some great ones there. The Sun Also Rises is a brilliant novel. A Farewell to Arms is right up there with it as well. Um, but the short stories that he wrote, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber, um, A Way You Are, the, oh, no, The Way You Were uh, from his collection, In Our Time, uh, Big Two-Hearted River, uh, story after story after story are so carefully crafted. And people who talk about, oh, Hemingway's uh, simple, some even say simplistic style. Um, what is the uh, the thing that you learned in class? It's the iceberg theory. Uh, you're only seeing a small percentage above the water and there's tremendous depth in all of those stories which are meant to be read again and again. And you, you have a favorite as well among uh, great short story writers uh, crossing the pond, uh, James Joyce. The Dubliners has to be one of the greatest short story collections ever written. Um, now, I also have a favorite, but it's not somebody I recommend to people. Uh, William Faulkner. So when I was a senior at LaSalle, we had to write four 20-page papers on an author of our choice, and I opted for Faulkner. 
Uh, and I, from age 20 uh, up to age 60, really love Faulkner's novels. Uh, where I'm sitting right now, uh, at age 80, I don't want to read any more Faulkner novels, but I would reread his stories, A Rose for Emily, Barn Burning, uh, reread them in a nanosecond. They're that good. And again, what a wonderful craftsman. Uh, he said the short story was harder to write than the novel. Uh, he said that, um, in novels, you've got a lot of places to uh, hide things in, meaning you can make mistakes in a novel and people won't catch you. But in a short story, not every only every sentence, but every word has to be precise and say what it's supposed to say. Uh, but you've got some some writers in American literature in particular whom I, whom I know that you in, not only enjoy, but you really liked. I do. And, but, you know, it's interesting. Um, lately, I've been thinking about how it's almost like in professional sports, college sports. Now, you know everything about the players, you know everything about their lives, and it can impact your feeling about a player on the field. You know, I was recently a totally different feeling about Hemingway after you know watching the PBS specials, yeah. seeing all the other things. Like, will that impact writers, too? Now that writers, we know more about them, about their lives, I mean, Hemingway's life certainly was fascinating, but he, he also was boorish, and he also had a lot of a lot of bad characteristics. You know, do you think that impacts people, or can people separate themselves? Um, I've never been a biographical critic, so of course I've read the standard biographies. Carlos Baker's biography of Hemingway was the one that stood for so long. And I did watch the PBS series, which I enjoyed. Uh, but, you know, the, the writer is different from the life that has been lived. Um, I heard Hemingway read once on a, on a record that was made, I guess, in the 1940s. And what, what really struck me was the sensitivity in his voice, because I always thought of him, you said boorish, you know, he, he was um, American macho man. Um, he's got his fist up in the air. Um, he was very proud of saying, I can uh, out fight, out drink and out blank uh, any man that I know. And he got into uh, several fights in his life a very public one with Arthur Wallace Stevens, whose jaw he broke. Um, some other things going on with his desire to infiltrate the war, meaning he, want, he was very proud of being in the army, uh, even though he wasn't in the army as such. Uh, yes, World War I uh, took its toll with the ambulance corps and how he got hurt, et cetera. But he, he always wanted to project that kind of image as hard fighting and hard drinking. And I, mean, I fear because he was also a notorious womanizer for wives. Um, when he wrote the, the novel, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, he was um, being basically financially um, taken care of by his second wife, Pauline Pfeiffer. 
living at the house on Whitehead Street in Key West, but he was hanging out uh, at the bar every day uh, with um, Martha Gellhorn, who wound up becoming wife number three. And despite the fact that uh, Pauline was not only watching their child, but watching his first child from Hadley Nicanor, um, he's now with another woman and he dedicates that novel to her. I mean, how callous can you be? Uh, and I think that would drive an awful lot of readers away from him, particularly women. And Hemingway does show up as a, a misogynist in a couple of the stories that he's writing, that he wrote, uh, somewhat anti-Semitic in The Sun Also Rises as well. And those kind of biographical details that we know about him can uh, leach over into the fiction and people might say, now, he's not for me. Um, I'm not interested in that kind of writing. Faulkner was a notorious alcoholic, notorious in this sense. He evidently went on the wagon when he was writing a novel. But as soon as he finished writing the novel, uh, he just fell apart, uh, drowning in bourbon. And uh, the novels themselves are, are it's, it's ingenious. We'll never see another writer like William Faulkner. Uh, and he's somebody who never really had an, an audience. I mean, The Sound and the Fury and As They Lay Dying were published in 1929, 1930, but all of Faulkner's novels were out of print in, I think, 1940 when Malcolm Cowley uh, came out with the portable Faulkner. And what, 14 years later, he winds up winning the Nobel Prize in American literature, as of course, Hemingway did as well. Um, so whether they will be read in the future, the more we know about their lives, uh, I'm not sure. I'm thinking back. I don't know if it was on your door. I don't even know if you'd remember on your door. But I remember many times I thought about it when I was in medical school and residency because I loved to read so much and I was an English major and those sorts of things. And I somebody had on their door. I think it might have been you. It was a physician with a patient and basically saying, care to discuss Faulkner. And it was a cartoon. Like the you know, I had something like that. I used to clip out some of the cartoons and I would put them on the door. And it all depends what year or I might even say what decade. Because <laughs> some of the things lasted for 10 years up there. I, it might have been you, but I just remember, I always found it like ironic. You know, well, the patient's kind of like, I need you as a doctor, not as a, somebody's going to discuss Falker. But, you know, in one of the things, and for people who have all sorts of backgrounds, though, if you read and you enjoy literature, I think it does bring a lot to whatever career you have because you you meet people in their world as well, or you can understand other people's worlds, and it's helpful. Well, you know, I had two dentists who were LaSalle graduates, uh, Ed Frunzi and his nephew, uh, Ed DePaul. Um, wonderful, wonderful guys. But when I came in, they would all actually set up something where they could talk to me about the books they were reading. Uh, and we had a like 10 or 15 minute discussion of books. And Ed Frunzi, actually, after he retired, he came and sat in on my novel class that I was teaching in the evening division. 
and he he contributed it. He just came in and sat in, read the books, and enjoyed himself tremendously. So that you know, there you are. You have uh, a couple of lives. You were a biology major because you wanted to become an MD, but you were also an English major, and that's the side that I think you've always desired to indulge in. Um, I don't know if you can see over my shoulder. I've got your first book up on my bookshelf. And when you wrote that book uh, and sent me a copy and I looked at it and I said, now this is an MD who knows how to write. And that's one side of your English background. But I know you also are looking for uh, uh, more leisure time in your future where you can read a lot of the books that you didn't really have time for when you were, well, let's face it, making a living. Well, it is funny, um, and I want to go over a couple more books before we wrap it up, but it is funny. I remember going back, and I went to one. It was a English department reunion. It was about 10 years out, and I really felt out of it because everybody was talking about all these books that I had not written or read because I frankly was just studying and reading medical books. And, you know, it, you're right. I think in your career and in your time, sometimes you don't find that balance, especially if you're in a career which demands a lot of reading. You know, you just are kind of like, I just want to get out and exercise or whatever. So it, I agree. I'm, I'm coming more to that, enjoying the Irish writers as well, because uh, a lot of that world in 1916, 1920, those things are fascinating because that was such an important time in their history as, uh, you know, as they went through and got their independence. So uh, it's interesting stuff. But I want to go back. What other books, a couple more maybe that you would say um, people might be interested in? Uh a book that got a lot of press last year, uh, Jeanine Cummings' novel, American Dirt. Um, when I read it through the first time, I liked it but didn't love it. When I read it the second time, I really appreciated all the work that she put in it. It's, it's a little different for a, um, a novel of this sort. Um, it's a mother and her son who are fleeing Acapulco, Mexico and trying to make it into the United States. Uh, different in this respect. She's not a oh, down and out uh, person who's, uh can't find a job and is attracted by at least the, uh, the image of the American Eden, El Norte, where, where everybody flourishes. Uh, she's a college graduate whose husband was a newspaper reporter, and he winds up being murdered because he kept reporting about the local branch of the drug cartel. And the person who murders her is somebody whom, in a very ironic way, she comes to know. She owns a bookstore. He stops in the bookstore. The two of them discuss literature. They love certain authors in common. And then she finds out that he's a cold-blooded murderer. And so she takes her son, who's an extremely precocious young man, and the two of them uh, then go on the road uh, in their attempt to get to the United States. And this is a novel which is harrowing in certain respects, but scene after scene are so well-developed, so well-written, and the characters she meets along the way 
are, um, are, are just wonderful individuals uh, from every single social strata that you can imagine. Uh, and they take her in, she takes them in, and it's a novel that uh, has a, a, very, uh, a very compelling set of observations about human beings and what's become a cliche anymore, their resilience, um, their tenacity. Uh, but I, I like that book very much. And of course, that immigrant experience is so much uh, around us from the beginning of our nation. But the refugee experience, not only from Mexico, but the ones that we're seeing now um, coming in from Ukraine, um, these are uh, heartwarming and simultaneously heartbreaking. Want to do one more book, but before I do, another question. I wanted to ask you: Is there a period of life where people? I know, like for instance, love songs and things. It's usually people in their twenties and thirties. If they, even at that old, they're they're washed up probably by the time of thirty. In many respects, but what about authors? What 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 decade in a person's life uh, brings the most to an author, or is there not a decade? Now, are you asking what authors I would recommend? Um, that would be probably dependent on your perception as a reader and your age, probably. I think. It is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, one, you know, one of the ways I find out uh, about books, it's not just from the two book clubs that I'm in, in which uh, basically my syllabus is created by a bunch of uh, people uh, and we vote on the books and uh, I'm hooked in to read some books I would never read on my own, some of which I like, some of which I didn't. But this is an over 55 community. Now you're talking about your youngest and what she would be interested in. Uh, my daughter, whom you know, because you taught her tennis at one point, uh, Peggy Ann, and her daughter, Molly, who will be 25 this year, um, they are readers. And so I will ask them, what are you reading? And it's very interesting about to see some of the books that Molly's reading. Um, she hasn't really pulled me in yet uh, to read some of those uh, Juno Diaz novel uh, she had read recently. And I had read The uh, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow a couple of years ago, and that was an award winner. Um, but uh, she she has to talk to her peers and find out what are they reading because what old fogies like me are reading and recommending are not necessarily books that she would like. Like my daughter loved Ann Patchett's Commonwealth. I wasn't crazy over that, but I loved Ann Patchett's The Dutch House, which my daughter couldn't really get into. So, you know, it's the, the De, De Gustibus principle, Brian. De gustibus nanas disputandum. Taste is not to be disputed. And so you may like vanilla ice cream. I may like chocolate ice cream. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Our tastes are different and legitimate. Well, it's been fascinating getting together. So one last book before we go. Uh, uh, hey, let me tell you about a novel from one of my neighbors. Uh, this is, this is a, a wonderful achievement. Paul Fleming, uh, When Courage Comes, and it is so delightfully readable. 
uh, about something that I never knew about. It has to do with German soldiers who are in an internment camp in Texas during World War II. And uh, this is a book that will really warm your heart when you read this, but it's got all those elements. It's got character, it's got plot, it's got setting, it's got point of view, uh, and some very interesting people uh, get involved in very interesting things. Um, no, no plot spoilers here though. Dr. Jack Cito, I wanna thank you for taking the time. It's a fascinating conversation. And for people watching, I know you could probably talk all day about old books and, and things because there's so many great ones out there, but uh, we'll have to do this again. And I wanna thank you so much for taking time to join the show. Brian, I'm flattered that you would even think uh, to interview me. And I enjoyed, as you know, I always do when I talk to you, I enjoy talking about literature and I'll leave you just with this maxim. So many books, not enough time. That's a great way to end it. Thank you again for taking the time. Okay, Ryan. The Dr. Brian McDonough Show.